If you're just joining us this morning online, welcome. We're glad to have you with us. And uh, thanks for tuning in or turning on or whatever it is that you do, clicking on whatever the situation may be. And uh, trust that God has you uh, with us for a purpose this morning as well as he has us together for a purpose. We're in the sixth chapter of the book of John. That's where we'll be looking, picking up where we left off last week and cover a few more verses there this week. I'm convinced, as you know, that there's nothing uh, more important that we have a proper understanding of than God himself. Our view of God, our understanding of God, his nature, his character, uh, that is the most significant thing that I believe uh, you and I can have a a really solid grasp and understanding of. And then second, right behind that, would be an understanding of who we are according to God. Who does he say you are? What does that look like? According to what he says. Sure could alleviate a lot of confusion in our world on some simple things like what is a male and a female which Supreme Court justices now, it seems like we've even appointed one who couldn't answer that question. Um, she obviously doesn't have a very good understanding about what God says about her, does she? And so not to be dissing on anybody, where, does, where do these simple basic ideas of who we are come from, if not the maker? And so that's, that is a very, very important thing to understand in a society that's bombarding with us with all kinds of ideas that are lies about who we are as individuals. So I think the accuracy of your view in those two things, and then once you get that accurate, stepping into those and believing the right things then about yourself and about God, it'll either make you or break you, really. I'm also convinced that you can spend a lifetime on this quest of just finding out more and more and more about who God is. He is so big and so awesome that you're never going to exhaust that or get to the end of it. And the same way is true about you. I think you'll find out more and more and more and more who you are and the specialness of the creation you are and the person you are to God and end that process of letting him then define you in that relationship especially that you have with him in Christ Jesus because it transforms and redefines everything for us and so those those concepts are just urgent that we grab and urgent that we then step into with some kind of belief and the fact that it's not exhaustive should give us um some desire to just pursue that, wouldn't you think? It's kind of like the love of God. Do you think that you will die having come to grasp with and fully understanding the width, the length, the height, and the depth of Christ's love for you? No. I don't think I will. I think I learn more about it every day. And at 65, I know way more about it than I did at age 20, right? And I don't think I'm going to get to the bottom of that. So there is this opportunity for us to grow, this room for us in relationship to just grow with him. Now, John really kind of takes that as a basic approach, I think, to his gospel. 
He wants us to understand who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. And he wants us to come to a place of believing a position that we're going to take concerning ourselves in relationship to God. And in that, he says that you're going to have eternal life. That's kind of his approach here. To understand ourselves, we must understand and turn to Jesus. And then we're going to get to that place where we have life. He says it in John 20, 31. These things have I written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He was presenting Jesus, the Messiah, to the Jews. The Jews had expectations of the expected Christ, didn't they? And if those were not accurate and they didn't line up, what would their tendency have been to do? To say no to this Jesus who said that he was the Messiah. And John knew that. And he knew where these expectations were off. And he knew where people were not seeing Jesus correctly. And he was trying in his presentation here with his gospel, with the power of the Holy Spirit, guided and led by that. He was trying to bring the Jews to a place to challenge those expectations so that they could step into believing God to be who God really was and the Son of God to be who he really was. Now, folks, that has incredible application for us, doesn't it? Do you ever talk to anybody that doesn't have some expectations about who Jesus is and God is? Some mindset, some preconceived view of who God is and who Jesus is. And then if he doesn't fit into that, what do they do? Very often just reject, don't they? Just say, no, this is the God I'm looking for. This is the God he is. No. And how can there be so much pain and suffering in the world if God is all love? Mm, so what do you do? Well, this is the God that, that, that I'm going, that I'm looking for, the one I want to serve, the one that, you know, it's, this, there's just no, uh, no evil that goes on anymore. So I'm rejecting that. I mean, we get into all kinds of things like that uh, to where we have our idea of God and we reject him as he truly is. And sometimes if, if not careful, uh, we'll reject him entirely. Okay. John, trying to change some expectations here to get him to see Jesus to be as he was. If you remember last week, we ended, they were... Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And if you remember, they came and they were trying to take him and make him king by force. Now, Jesus in that moment quickly withdrew, it says, because this forced kingship was not what he wanted. He was wanting to be king and Lord in our hearts. He wasn't coming to set up some physical kingdom here on earth. And in fact, when Pilate asked him about his kingdom, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. You know, and uh, anyway, I could chase some rabbits there that have to do with eschatology and what I, I believe, what I believe about certain things in Revelation. The Jesus kingdom that he came to set up is not here. It's in the hearts of men. It's not a physical kingdom where he is, uh, he's going to be the next King David advancing uh, Israel's kingdom. So at any rate, he rejected that. He moved away from that. Um, withdrew 
to a mountain to be by himself is, uh, is what the word says. If you go back and you look in Matthew, the fourth chapter, the old devil talked to Jesus at one point and he said, if you'll bow down, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus rejected that because he knew his kingdom was not of this world. And now we've got a group of people that have come along and said, hmm, you can do that with bread. You can do that with fish. Man, you could feed an army on the go. I mean, you, you, this, this has got to be, yeah, we're all in. You be this next king. These kingdoms are going to be yours. So when I look at this, this whole agenda that they had, had the devil's hand on it, didn't it? It surely wasn't the purposes of God that he had for him in becoming the king that he was going to be that was going to usher in a whole new kingdom. Does Satan ever do that to you? Does he ever come at something, the same thing, come at it a different way to try to trip you up? You know, you would hope that back in Matthew 4, okay, we solved that situation. Jesus said no. Now, he's never going to have to say no again. That's been settled. Satan's never going to bother him with that again, right? It's not how the devil works, is it? It's not how he works. So, you know, you've been assaulted at one point and you've won some victory there. Uh, folks, hold on, because it could very well be that the old devil's going to come around another way and try to assault you again in another way uh, from an angle you might not be looking at. He withdrew to a mountain by himself. I like that passage. I think anybody in the Northwest who drives a four, five, four by four appreciates that verse, don't you? He withdrew to a mountain by himself. Uh, sometimes you just need to get away from it all and you need to get along with God, don't you? And I hope you have a plan for getting away with God and, uh, and uh, you work your plan. I think of this as mountain moments with the master. That's where Jesus was and that's where we need to be sometimes, right? I, if I ever write a devotional, which I won't, but if I ever did, that's what I would name it. Mountain moments with the master. So if that ever shows up somewhere, uh, somebody stole it because I copyrighted it right now. All right. So, oh, let's pick up in John 6, 16 now. All of that's important. Uh, you're going to see in a minute that we kind of set that setting for us again. But in 6, 16, when evening came, his disciples came down to the lake where they got into a boat and they set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them and a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. Now what you're going to see here is that John flies through this and gives us absolutely no detail and gives us no teaching. It seems like the only thing that John is concerned about here is just saying, how did they get to the other side of the lake? You know, uh, if you look at it in the other Gospels, so let's take Matthew uh, 14, for instance. Listen to what it says there. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside um, by himself to pray. And when evening came, there he was alone. 
But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And uh, then he goes on, and I won't read it to you, to give us that whole story, uh, the narrative about how Peter then, as Jesus walked to him on the water, said, you know, if it's you, let me come to you. Jumped out of the boat, walked for a while, sank, you know, all you remember that. He gives us that whole narrative. He gets in the boat. The teaching then is one about faith. <clears throat> in Matthew, he talks about that. Here in John, he leaves out the whole Peter walking on the water thing, along with the lesson of faith that was obviously a part of that night's teaching. He seems to even to just be concerned about getting those disciples over on the other side of the lake. Um, if you read it from John's gospel, you might just think that they left Jesus there and deserted him. It just says they got in the boat and took off and poor Jesus, he was there to fend for himself. You know, I mean, you might assume that, but we know that was not the case. So before we get into John's reason here, there are a bunch of side eddies here and uh, off course really with what John was driving at or the direction that he was pursuing. And I think that that's probably why they aren't here. But uh, let's just throw in a couple of them very quickly. Sometimes we find ourselves, don't we, doing what we're sure that Jesus has directed us to do and getting nowhere. Have you ever done that? You go back to the last time you heard from him and you're really sure this is the direction he told you to go, but you're not making much headway. Can't even seem to get a few miles under your belt so that you can get to the other side of the lake. It's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? When we don't see prog progress or when we're working, you know, and we're exhausted. I mean, boy, if you can be paddling the boat and you can look at the shore and see you're moving forward, you can get excited. But if you're not feeling it and you're getting tighter, yeah. Well, don't despair. The teaching here, I guess, would be in due season. You're going to reap whatever it is that you're sowing in obedience to Jesus. You'll accomplish all he intends for you to accomplish if you just persevere. It'll happen. You think God asks you to do something that you can't handle with his help? I don't think so. I don't think he gives us those kinds of tasks. Second, I think that maybe Jesus needed just a real break here from the one on uh, from the people, a little one on one with God, the father. And I think if Jesus needed that and went aside to that mountain, it should really speak to us volumes about our one on one time with the Lord, too, and the prioritizing of that one on one time. But John just skips over all that. He, his next statement is, when they had rowed three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Boy, he left out a lot, didn't he? He really seems to be focused on the crowd, if you can catch it that's coming around and that conversation that's going to happen and if he took too long there we might forget what he just talked about jesus there with that crowd the breaking of the bread that miracle his, their response to that where they were wanting to make him king his response pulling away now he's on the other side and these people are going to look for him again and as they do and they meet up it's almost like he could have left that out completely because the discourse that he's going to give us, this is the longest chapter in the book of John, and it's, it, has, it starts the I am statements of our Lord. He just really throws the bucket 
of uh, theology out on him in a big way here. I mean, he just, he puts it out there. And if he spent too much time on that in the middle, you might have lost the thought about where he was coming to and where he was going. And so I think that's the reason for it. But even so, there are two miraculous things in his quick little uh, recounting of this incident that I think are important to note. One is Jesus walked on the water, and the second was the boat got there instantly, it seems like, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were headed. Is that another miracle? A lot of the commentaries think that it is. There are many points to be made here, the chief of which might be that Jesus is Lord of the elements. I mean, if you can walk on water and then telepath across the lake, uh, or teleport, I guess it is, across the lake, uh, maybe you've got something going on in creation that the rest of us don't understand. Maybe you're Lord of something here uh, that we should take note of. Maybe you would be this unique son of God, right? Um, would this have been new to the Jews? How would they have responded to this? Well, there was obviously in their history... Uh, a man named uh, Elijah who had, uh, I think it was Elijah. Let me look. No, it was Elisha. Elisha, those two I get mixed up all the time. I wish one had been Fred and one George and I could have kept it straight. But anyway, uh, yeah, Elijah and Elisha are just too close. Uh, but at any rate, uh, the axe head uh, that sank and it was borrowed and he threw the stick in and it floated. Okay, this wasn't... This wasn't totally out of their frame of reference that, you know, something that was supposed to sink could float. Although it, you, have to, you have to say it was new that somebody was walking on the water. And, it, you know, it, all of the water stories before or crossing of the water before had been on dry land. Where it, whether it was the Jordan or whether it was the Red Sea, they went across on dry land. So this, this was a new thing. It's, I think this had to be seen to them by them as something something different if you uh something they'd never heard of before something maybe that they'd stand up and pay attention to and then this whole idea of just all of a sudden instantly being at the next place uh you know i, I don't think they had any frame of reference for anything like that at all that i can think of only other situation like that i know of in the bible would have been past jesus on the other side when philip after talking to the Ethiopian eunuch was suddenly just grabbed by the spirit and placed in another place. But other than that, uh, that was would have been a new thing too. These should have, I think, uh, caused them to begin to question the paradigm that they had for what they might be looking for in this prophet, this priest, and this king that was coming. Um, and, and certainly that's where Jesus wanted them to go and where John wanted them to go. Uh... Let's go to verse 22. As I said before, John seems to be interested about in them getting to the other side, about what's going to happen there. And this essential theme that he's going to be teaching. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. But they had gone away alone. And then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And once the crowd realized 
that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and they went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? I don't know what question I would have been asking. But I'm not sure it would have been that one. They were just curious, I guess, about how he got over there when, to their recollection, there was, there was no way this could have taken place. But look at Jesus' answer. He says, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. The manna that came to the people in Exodus 16 came to them after they had grumbled. And Moses really had nothing to do with that. Jesus broke the bread, if you will remember, and then he gave it to the people. If you remember, I was just trying to recount through the Old Testament, and I'm surely, certainly sure my memory is not exhaustive, but there was another time where the oil and the flour didn't run out. And so the widow was able to feed herself and her son and Elijah, if you remember that. Um, but it wasn't Elijah that was the source of the provision. It was God who was the source of the, position, of the provision. It was Moses who was really the one who was the distributor, maybe, of the provision. It was the widow who was the one who was the distributor of the provision. But if you look at what Jesus had done here, it's unique. It's even unique from the water turning to wine because here you have something water and exact quantity drop for drop turns into wine. Here you have somebody who's taking something that was a part of creation, few fish and few loaves, and then he's doing something with them that is astounding and able to meet an incredible need. It is like the manna that came from heaven that fed the people. But the intermediary here, the one who is bringing the provision, is also the God who is making the provision. I see this kind of like, uh, and, and there's not a lot of commentaries, no commentaries to back me up on this. So if I'm out there on my own, I'm out there on my own. But think of it this way. God had created and there in the Garden of Eden, he realized when he looked at Adam that, hey man, all this is amazing and it's wonderful, but it's not good that man be alone. There was something lacking there. And he took from what he had created a rib and he did something absolutely amazing, didn't it? More than you could possibly imagine. And what Jesus had done here was something amazing. More than they could have imagined. Even the disciples who had more faith than anybody there, in my opinion, were pushed to even, to even step into this belief. You remember, Philip said, man, Lord, we can't come up with enough here to feed. Nope, not going to happen. We don't have the money. It can't buy it. And Andrew says, hey, yeah, but here's a, yeah, but what are they among so many? A real big faith step to believe that he could do something with that as God incarnate in flesh among us and feed that multitude. And he did. So this was more than just him following in line with Moses, as I see it, to be the one who distributed the provision. But I see him 
as the God who created the provision in that moment. And I think, I think that I'm on line with this. I think that John is trying to teach this. But what were these people concerned about? They had a really nice supper the night before and they wanted breakfast. This is like the wine. I don't think ever, Jesus ever did anything halfway. I don't know what kind of fish he started with, but when he started breaking it, I'm pretty sure that it was sturgeon, okay? I mean, I just don't think you can beat sturgeon. Uh, whatever it was, it's, it, when Jesus touches it, it turns into something that's the best. And it's enough. It's complete. And so uh, these people that had experienced that were probably looking for steak and eggs the next morning. I mean, and it's possible that a lot of them, maybe as some scholars have said, had never really had a lot of opportunities to eat to their absolute heart's content to where their bellies were full. And that had happened and there was still those 12 baskets that were picked up afterwards. And so we see something here, I think, in this sign of, uh, of the, just the magnitude and the power of God as... as uh, as God in flesh dwelling among us. Let me read you what the Broadman Bible Commentary said about this. It says, this uh, accusation by Jesus sharply defines two opposing views of the goal of life. One is to see, to understand, as in that kind of see, and the other is to eat. To some man, <coughs> to some Man is primarily a spiritual being who lives by insights and convictions and intangible values. To other, he's just primarily a physical being engaged in a lifelong struggle for bread. Jesus clearly shows his concern for the material needs of life by feeding the hungry multitude. But he did so in such a way as to signify those realities which may be appropriated only by faith. They were interested only in food, food that would spoil, the stuff necessary for physical life. Jesus here was trying to push them to look for that which was food for spiritual life, food for eternal life. Look at it. Do not work for food that spoils, but work for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give, important word, give you. On him, or God the Father, has placed his seal of approval. One is giving is contrasted here with work. One is work, one is give. Note those two differences. The Jews really were trapped in this idea of works. Faith was not a foreign concept to them. It was a part of the sacrificial system. It had been demonstrated by patriarchs. It was something surely in their heritage that they should have had a better grip on but they had reduced their religion for the most part to the laws and the religious laws and the keeping of those in order to obtain the things of God, to obtain the blessings of God. And to jump into this idea that it was a gift, something that Jesus wanted to give them, was taxing them. Do people have problems with that today? It's a concept that people struggle with. We want to work. This, in verse 28, it says, they ask him, once he said this, he said, what must we do to do the works with God, which God requires? It sounds a lot, a lot, uh, an awful lot to me like that rich young ruler that came to Jesus and says, what must I do in order to have eternal life, in order to inherit eternal life? 
the focus is on the doing in both of these. They hadn't got to the point where they could receive that gift. And listen, folks, we struggle with that today. People want to do. I've talked to people who say, well, I just don't see how saying a prayer and doing this or whatever, just believing, it, it, how is that going to get me into heaven? Because it is a gift. That's the way you receive the gift. It's not something you do. Well, in their mind, there's something that they have to do. And that's where these people were. Again, let me kind of conclude here with a, another reading from the Broadman. It said, Jesus had intended a contrast between men laboring for that which perishes, perishes and the Son of Man giving that which endures. His hearers, however, assumed that he meant to distinguish between working for man to earn earthly bread that perishes and working for God, notice, working for God to earn the heavenly bread that endures. I think that's what is going on here. How hard is it to understand religion as a gift instead, instead of a chore? It is hard for us. God acted <clears throat> to give man salvation in Christ. This grace through faith approach leaves men, I love this, not less but infinitely more responsible. For now they must respond in obedient love to the son who bears the seal of having sent God, sent, being sent by God rather than attempting to conform by anxious striving to a set of re religious pers uh, prescribed to a set of regulations prescribed by a, a religious tradition. Is that not where we're at? Wanting to jump into something that is religion, wanting to do, and boy, once you receive what God has given by grace, the responsibility to live in love and in faith leads to far more righteousness than you're going to find, far more responsibility that you're going to feel than if you're trying to do. Because in doing, what you want to know is the bare minimal standard so that somehow or another, the goal will have been achieved. Right? So the scale will be weighed, the balance will be tipped, and I'll know I'm going into heaven. But when you receive the gift... And the love relationship begins. The responsibility is infinite. And the depth of that relationship grows as we step into that love and to that responsibility. What was the crowd's response to this? Okay. You're wanting us to step away from works. You're wanting us to step into believing, right? Jesus said the work that when asked then exactly, I don't know if I read this verse to you or not. That's how my mind works now. But his response directly to them when they asked what this work was that God requires for eternal life. In verse 29, he had answered, the work of God is this, to believe the one that he had sent. So what was their response? Okay, we've seen. You broke the bread. We're getting what you're saying. We're understanding the teaching. You are the Christ, the Son of God. We believe, right? No, what was their response in verse 30? So they asked him, what miraculous sign will you give so that we may see and believe 
you give us a sign so that we can see and believe, what will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what are you going to do? We're already on sign number four here, people. And he just broken the bread. What good is a sign if you can't read it? You're going to go off the cliff. Billy Graham had a devotional even about that this week. We read it if you're following along. Jesus must have been really frustrated at this point. What has been your response to this Jesus, to this Messiah? Some are not striving for the things of God at all. They just don't care. Others are striving and losing in this work battle. And they lack faith. John says that when you're through with striving and you believe Jesus is the Son of God, and able to give you life, then by faith, you can have life. Believing is your response to Jesus. And if you have not, there's still in your life no eternal life. Now we get into the I am statements. That's where we're going next week moves as Jesus now moves to develop this whole concept further. And not only do we, we, we see him being that one who is the provision uh, or the one distributing the bread, but you're going to see him in a different light as the very bread of heaven itself. You want the manna? It's standing in front of you. You want a sign? Here it is. That's where we're going next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we start by faith. We continue in faith. It is the only appropriate response to our Lord and Savior. And it leads to great responsibility because of great love. And an outpouring, Lord, of obedience to you. Not in order for redemption, but in order, Lord Jesus, to be faithful with the incredible gift that you've given. It is a gift. Zelane Ionian. Age, life, eternal life. It is a gift that demands responsibility. Help us to walk in that place. And if we've not made the step to open our eyes and receive you as the Savior you are, that we would do that and receive your gift. Lord, whatever our heart needs to do in this moment by the power of your Holy Spirit convict and guide so that we'll know how to say yes to you in this moment 
for Jesus' sake, Lord, that we might see his kingdom come right here in our own lives as it is in heaven. Amen.